T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. Welcome to Face Connecticut, an in-depth look at today's issues. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Face Connecticut on WTIC News Talk 1080, 96.5 TIC-FM and Light 100.5 WRCH. Aaron Kupek with you this Sunday morning, and we are pleased to be joined by Senator Chris Murphy. Good morning to you, sir. Good morning. Thank you very much for having me. Well, the lame duck session is underway. First of all, what are the prospects for another COVID-19 relief package, and what do you feel should be in it? Well, first of all, it's just absolutely vital that we get a package done. Um, Everyone in Connecticut knows the level of desperation that is seeping into our communities. The food lines are longer than ever before. Unemployment benefits will be running out at the end of the year for uh, thousands and thousands of folks in Connecticut who have lost their jobs through no fault of their own because of this pandemic. Uh, People have been reading articles about uh, the massive funding shortfall for Metro North and our commuter rail systems that could uh, cause them to collapse uh, and not be there ready to restart when our economy gets fully back up and running. Uh, we need help. And uh, the federal government uh, you know, has stepped up several times uh, thanks to bipartisan acts of Congress uh, over the course of the pandemic. We need to do it again. Your question, Aaron, is what are the chances? Uh, well, You know, we have a problem right now, which is that Donald Trump is not engaged at all in these discussions. Um, And without Donald Trump engaged, that means Mitch McConnell isn't engaged. He's the leader of the Senate, and he tends to not do anything without permission from uh, President Trump. So without their attention, it's really hard uh, to put together a bill. Uh, A handful of Republicans and Democrats in the Senate came up with a proposal of just short of a trillion dollars. Um, uh, hopefully, uh, Senator McConnell will take a look at that. Uh, the White House will take a look at that and see if they can maybe put it on the floor for a vote. But we need help in Connecticut, and, and I'm certainly not going to let the perfect be the enemy of the good. I, I'm willing to accept half a loaf here if we can get some money uh, for unemployment benefits, if we can get some money to help out our uh, our, our cities and our states' uh, coronavirus response efforts, if we can get a little bit of transportation money, I'll, I'll take it and then live to fight another day. I'm working hard to try to get there. You mentioned the end of the year deadline, but there's another deadline looming before that. Could that help move the needle on this? It could. We have a December 11th uh, deadline. The, the government shuts down on December 11th, uh, and I think we're going to be able to come to an agreement on a budget before then, but that certainly does present the opportunity to attach to that budget uh, some uh, COVID relief uh, dollars. Um, and let me add to the list, I didn't in my opening remarks, um, business relief. 
uh, you know, I was in Middletown with Mayor Florsheim uh, just before the Thanksgiving holiday, trying to drum up uh, support for holiday shopping at small businesses. I wrote an op-ed in the Hartford Current uh, about this topic uh, last week. Uh, I'm a huge believer in small businesses, but a lot of them are going to go under this winter if we don't get them a little bit of additional help. So we need to do that as well. And you're right that this deadline that is coming up to fund the overall operations of the government does provide us with an opportunity to attach some COVID-specific dollars. But again, really difficult to do that while Donald Trump is spending all of his time you know, filing lawsuits to try to overturn the election. What can the federal government do as, as the new administration prepares to take office that it hasn't already been doing to help bring an end to the pandemic beyond COVID-19 relief? Well, we need a national response. Right now, we don't have it, right? The response is all being done on a state-by-state basis. Um, and, and that doesn't meet the moment for a number of reasons. First, you know, in Connecticut, you know, we were wildly successful at going from a hotspot to the lowest transmission rate in the nation. Um, but of course, we've seen our success gradually be eroded, in part because when you have these hotspots throughout the South and the Midwest, eventually that's going to creep into Connecticut. So if you don't have a national plan, then no matter how good a state does at social distancing and mask wearing and testing and tracing, no state can protect itself fully. Second, there are certain things um, that states really can't do and fund on their own. Uh, For instance, testing equipment. Um, We are not doing as much testing as we should and could in Connecticut because the testing supply chain is still broken. Connecticut can't manufacture testing equipment on its own. That has to be done on a national basis. But in Manchester, Connecticut, they shut down their drive-through testing at the hospital there at around 12 or one o'clock every day because they run out of the testing cartridges, not because there isn't the demand for testing. Anybody that tried to get a test before Thanksgiving were waiting in lines of an hour to three hours. That has to be done on a national basis. And Donald Trump has refused uh, to mount a national response. Joe Biden can fix that. Would you agree that another thing that has to be done on a national basis is the distribution of a coronavirus vaccine? And is the Trump administration more on board with that? Well, that clearly has to be done on a national basis. Obviously, it has to be administered at at the local level, but it has to be funded nationally. We've spent billions of dollars funding the development of this vaccine. And what a scientific achievement to get a vaccine this close to distribution with efficacy rates of 95% um, in a matter of months. But what a mistake it would be to have spent billions of dollars developing the vaccine, but then not spend the money to distribute the vaccine, right? The vaccine doesn't save anybody's life. It's the vaccination that saves the life. So we have to get the vaccine distribution effort funded. And right now, the Trump administration is refusing to do that. So we need funding in Connecticut, but we need to be working under a national plan. Um, We can distribute the vaccine in Connecticut, but we need to be doing it in accordance with a CDC-led plan and with funding from the CDC or HHS to be able to hire all the people that it's going to necessitate to do this vaccine. Remember, the two vaccines that are the the furthest along, they are complicated vaccines. 
Pfizer and Moderna have made great vaccines from a results standpoint, but they're not easy to administer. Multiple doses, they have to be stored at ultra high, temp- ultra low temperatures. Uh, that requires a lot of money and a lot of personnel. How confident should Americans be in the safety of a COVID vaccine? And will you be taking one? I will. Uh, I will take it as soon as one is available to me. I won't be you know, in the first tranche of those that will have the vaccine made available to them, that will be rightly reserved for, you know, healthcare professionals and first responders. We're going to get the vaccine into uh, nursing homes as quickly as possible. But this vaccine is uh, going to be safe. No doubt about it. Uh, the FDA is not going to approve a vaccine um, that isn't uh, 100% safe. Uh, and I'm going to encourage everyone in Connecticut to get this vaccine as, as soon as their turn uh, comes up. People are going to have to be patient. Um, it's going to take a while. Um, people may get different vaccines. Folks shouldn't worry about the fact that you know maybe one person might get the Moderna vaccine, another person might get the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Um, you know, as long as these vaccines are effective and safe and they will not be put on the market unless they are both effective and safe, people should be comfortable taking any of them. As you talk to people around Connecticut, what is their biggest concern about COVID-19? Listen, I, I think it's hard to rank those concerns. Um, uh, obviously, we've now lost 5,000 people in Connecticut. And so I think the primary concern that people have is um, the number of lives that have been lost by this very deadly virus. Um, that, that's a big number for a small state. Second, you know, people um, you know, have lost income. Um, people have lost their jobs. Folks have fallen on really hard times in this state. And until you completely get this vaccine, uh, get this virus under control, you can't get the economy back up and running. You know, people have just a lot of fatigue over social distancing. I mean, you know, Thanksgiving was hard. Um, you know, I get together with my extended family every Thanksgiving. I didn't this year. It was just me and Kathy and the kids. And, you know, it's difficult to think about doing that again for Christmas. So people are, you know, fatigued by, you know, the the, the way in which this has changed um, our lives. So, you know, I think people are ready for this to be over. And the tragedy, Aaron, is that this could have been over six months ago. If Donald Trump had run an effective response, if he hadn't given up, after his feckless travel ban didn't work, we could have been like South Korea. South Korea nipped this in the bud in a matter of months. And because Donald Trump failed, we are now going into our 10th, 11th, and 12th month. Switching gears, heading into the election, Democrats were heavily favored to take control of the Senate. If you do, it will be by the thinnest of margins. What do you think happened with those predictions leading up to Election Day? I don't really think we were heavily favored um, to win back the Senate. It was a pretty difficult map uh, for Democrats. Um, And so I'm not sure that it's a question of success or failure. Uh, There's obviously a route if the Democrats win the two seats in Georgia to control the Senate. Um, But this is a divided country right now. And, you know, we really got to you know, think about, um, you know, why that is and whether it's really good for America. Um, You know, right now there's a a difficulty in bridging gaps. And I have a lot of reasons why that occurs. I think the way in which we consume news sort of pushes us into corners. Um, The way in which campaigns are financed um, sort of pushes candidates to extremes. Um, We have to have a conversation in this country about, you know, how we can 
um, you know, reduce the levels of partisanship and frankly, you know, make these elections less important. Um, you know, it feels like the end of the world every time we have one of these elections. Well, it used to be that, you know, even when one party controlled the Senate, uh, members of the minority party had an opportunity to make policy, to have votes on bills and amendments that they thought were important. That doesn't happen today. And so uh, I, I would love to be part of a conversation about uh, reducing the overall level of hyper-partisanship in this country. That's not just a question about Congress. That's also a question about the dynamics happening inside the American electorate. You are listening to Face Connecticut. We are talking to Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy. Now, with that in mind, what do you say to the people who believe the election was stolen from President Trump? Well, I mean, it it, it wasn't stolen from President Trump. There's absolutely no evidence of voter fraud. All of these stories that the president is trading in are 100% fabrications. And I'm really, really worried for the future of our country when you know there's a whole bunch of people out there who think that anytime a Democrat wins an election, it must be illegitimate. Um, you know, the fact of the matter is um, there was no evidence of voter fraud in Pennsylvania or Michigan or Arizona. Uh, Republican officials in those states agree. Uh, Republican governor in Georgia has certified the election. And um, these conspiracy theories, um, you know, eventually can lead to the unraveling of democracy. Um, if you really believe that anytime the other party wins, it must be because of fraud, um, well, then that's an invitation to, you know, actually invalidate the votes of the opposing party. Um, I didn't like the fact that Donald Trump won the election in 2016, but within 24 hours, I acknowledged it, even though the results were much tighter than they were in 2020. And the failure of this president to concede uh, his insistence on whipping up uh, these wild ideas about the election being rigged you know, they're really dangerous for democracy. I really worry about our future. How do you think the efforts by the president and others to undermine the integrity of the election system will affect the Senate runoffs in Georgia? Well, I mean, one of the consequences may not be so hot for Republicans. I mean, you know, the president's, you know, down in Georgia, or at least he's telling people in Georgia that elections don't matter, that no matter who you vote for, um, it's not going to count because the elections are stolen. Of course, that's not true. Um, but it may actually cause a bunch of Republican uh, voters to not vote because their president, the leader of their party, is telling them that their vote doesn't uh, matter. Eventually, what I worry about, Aaron, is that, you know, at least on the Republican side of the aisle, you know, why would you run to be a secretary of state if you're sort of a straight shooter? You know, if you're going to get death threats like the secretary of state in Georgia has gotten just because he's choosing to certify the actual results of the election, um, you probably don't run for office. And what you'll probably get is kind of QAnon supporters, conspiracy theorists running to be elections officials. And those are the folks who, you know, really do or, or who may believe that there's no way in hell a Democrat could ever win. And so if a Democrat wins in my state, it must be because it's stolen and thus I should invalidate the result. Um, that's where I worry that this is going to head in Georgia and other places across the country. Now, you are on the Foreign Relations Committee in the Senate. 
How do you expect U.S. foreign policy to shift under the Biden administration? I I think there'll be a big shift. I mean, I think the first thing that's going to happen here is that President-elect Biden is going to beat the virus. He's going to mount a national response that will eventually get us over the hump here. Um, We've lost so much moral standing in the world because we are the sick child. Um, You know, we can't travel anywhere around the world because we have 5% of the world's population and 20 to 25% of the world's COVID deaths. So America can't be strong internationally unless we're strong domestically. Second, um, President-elect Biden is gonna restore our alliance structure. He's gonna reach back out to our NATO allies, to South Korea, to Japan, um, to try to unite the democracies of the world so that we have a coordinated response against Russian aggression or uh, China's attempts to write the new rules of the global economic order. You know, President Trump liked to talk about how tough he was getting on China, but he didn't achieve anything. We lost 300,000 jobs because of his trade war. He signed a nothing burger of an agreement with the Chinese. And the reason for that is because he did it by himself. He he went uh, America alone into a big trade dispute with China. If we went into that dispute with our European allies, potentially with other Asian allies, and said to China, you know, listen, we're standing together unless you change your economic rules so that you're not subsidizing these these technology products that you're exporting to the rest of the world, then we'd have some success. Those alliances really matter. And I think that's a a key difference between how Joe Biden approaches the world and Donald Trump. Now, the president-elect says he doesn't plan to draw on the House and Senate to fill out members of his cabinet and his administration because the margins are so thin. Do you uh, agree with that approach? Is he missing something? Is he missing out on on some institutional knowledge if if he if he doesn't draw on members of Congress? Well, I, listen, I I think that there are plenty of qualified people for every single administration post um, uh, outside of the United States Congress. <laughs> the Senate and the House don't have a monopoly on on wisdom or ability in this country. You know, that being said, you know I. I think if the president feels like there's somebody in the Senate or the House that's uniquely suited uh, to serve him and the country, um, then, you know, he should choose that individual. Uh, Obviously, you know, some choices may come with greater complications. Um, For instance, in, you know, states where there's a Republican governor and you would sort of have a Republican appointee substituted for a Democratic senator, that might um, chill the president-elect's interest in choosing that particular senator. But if he feels like somebody in Congress would suit his administration, I hope he would make that choice. Obviously, that's up to him. Certainly, COVID is still going to loom large for the new Congress. But what else would you like to see on the agenda for 2021? I'd really like us to tackle democracy reform. I think our democracy is in tough shape right now. Um, The way in which big money dominates uh, politics today is obscene. You know, these billionaires that throw dark anonymous money into races all across the country, um, it's just not right. Uh, And so I'd like to see us, you know, pursue campaign finance reform. Second, you know, we've got an economy that's just totally upside down right now. Um, During this pandemic, um, the 40 richest people in the country got billions of dollars richer, whereas everybody else, um, you know, fell through the floor. And so we've got this just total imbalance between 
the very, very rich and almost everybody else. Um, we've got to sort of lift the economic floor for um, the middle class and the poor in this country. And, and you can do that through a higher minimum wage. You can do that by increasing the educational guarantee that folks get beyond 12th grade to you know, guarantee people at least a free education through two years of college. But we need to do something to help out um, regular people out there who have seen their wages largely frozen um, their benefits frozen or reduced over the past 20 years. Congress has got to take up broad-scale economic reform. Now, if Republicans hold on to the Senate, how much legislation do you see realistically getting out of Congress into the president's desk? Yeah, it's hard. Um, it's hard. You know, Senator McConnell has not been interested in moving legislation through the Senate over the past uh, four years, really. You know, he, he's been mostly using the Senate just to confirm very conservative judges uh, to the bench. Obviously, you know, if we don't get a COVID relief package done by the end of the year, uh, we're going to need to find a path forward on that. And that will be Joe Biden's first priority. I hope there might be the ability to find some common ground on infrastructure. You know, we always sort of hope for a big federal infrastructure bill, but in the end, there don't seem to be enough Republicans that are willing to support it. Uh, so we'll continue to need to address COVID relief. Infrastructure will be a topic I think that both parties will be interested in. Um, my hope is that Senator McConnell doesn't, you know, do to Vice President, President-elect Biden what he did to President Obama when Obama came into office. McConnell famously said something along the lines of my number one priority is making sure that Barack Obama is a one-term president. Not my number one priority is increasing jobs or my number one priority uh, is making our schools better. No, it was it was making sure that Barack Obama is defeated. I, I hope that's not how he approaches a Biden presidency. Things seem to be even more polarized now than even back then. Could President-elect Biden even have problems getting some members of his cabinet confirmed? I think that's a, a real potential. You've already heard some resistance in the Senate to uh, uh, Neera Tandon, who was selected by President-elect Biden to head the Office of Management and Budget. My hope is that you know McConnell will you know be deferential. Um, obviously, you know the people Biden selects wouldn't be the people McConnell would select, but as long as they're qualified and not you know, outside the mainstream of progressive or democratic thought. I hope that Mitch McConnell would support those nominees. That's how I've approached Donald Trump's nominees. If you actually look at my voting record on Trump nominees, despite how, you know, vocally oppositional I often am to Donald Trump, I've actually voted for more of his nominees than almost all the other Democrats in the Senate. Um, I've given him a lot of deference. You know, I voted for John Kelly to be the Secretary of Homeland Security. I voted for Kelly Kraft to be the nominee to the UN. Well, many of my Democratic colleagues were voting against them because I did think that, you know, even though I have a deep personal objection to the president and his politics, um, that he should be able to, you know, have a cabinet. Uh, and I'm hoping that Republicans will, you know, follow that lead with President-elect Biden. You are out with a new book, "The Violence Inside Us: A Brief History of an Ongoing American Tragedy." Not your typical title from a U.S. politician. What inspired you to write this? Yeah, I mean, most books that come from, you know, political figures tend to be, you know, biographies of some sort. Uh, this is not uh, my biography. Uh, you know, my story over the last seven years is interwoven into this book, but it's, you know, really an effort to 
answer a simple question. Uh, why is America so violent? Why are we so much more violent than other high-income nations? How did we get this way? And what do we do about it? Um, as people watch you know, these stories unfold on the news, the mass shootings, um, the homicides in Hartford or New Haven, I think people want to know, you know, what is it about America that makes us so unique? And, and as much as I'm known for, you know, my very strong positions on gun laws, the book makes the case that it's not all about guns. A big part of American violence is the flood of weapons, especially legal weapons in our country. But a lot of it is about our history, is about a nation that was really founded in violence, that was organized by violence. Um, for centuries. And um, it speaks to the complexity of the story and also the complexity of the solutions. So, you know, my hope is that for people that do really wince when they see these mass shootings and want to know more um, about what happened and, and what to do going forward, uh, that they pick up uh, this book. It's a tough topic to read about, I understand, but I've tried to make it readable. Uh, it's filled with a lot of interesting storytelling. It's not, you know, too heavy on on data and, 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 and sorrow, although there are some sad stories in the book. Um, I hope it tells a, 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 a tale and explains um, a, uh, a story that people want to hear. He is Senator Chris Murphy. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot for having me. Thanks for listening to Face Connecticut. I'm Aaron Kupek. Enjoy the balance of your weekend. Face Connecticut is a production of the News and Public Affairs Department of WTIC Radio. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. T-Mobile.com. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 